0: I'm going to be reading this morning from 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5, first eight verses. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, and highly respected, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And it came about when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see, how he is seeking a quarrel against me. And it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And I'll pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you again for your ministry to us. Thank you, God, that you love us and you want us to know you and to fellowship with you and to walk with you in truth. We ask God that as we look at your word together, that we would just come to a deeper and greater understanding of your mercy and your grace toward us. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're keeping track here, I've just skipped from First, Second Kings, chapter two to chapter five. And um, I, I never was intending of going through all the way through 2 Kings because we'd be, you know, another year or so, maybe, um, in that. So I am moving toward wrapping things up with this series on, on 1 Kings and 2 Kings. But with Christmas coming up, it, it occurred to me um, that this chapter here about Naaman and his leprosy is a good lead-in to Christmas, perhaps. And then next Sunday, my plan at this point is again to look at at Kings, um, at another um, story that also, I think, um, reflects on why Christ came. So with this story, this whole chapter here um, is devoted to one story, and that is this Syrian general number two in the, in the land of Syria at the time, second only to the king, who is a leper. And he goes to Israel to have his leprosy healed, and in fact, it will be healed. And, you, and there's, um, it's a powerful story, and there are several miraculous things that are happening in this story, not just him being healed, but other things are going on as well. And not the least of those miracles is that in God's providence, God knew that this was going to happen, God's allowed this to happen, that this man, in one of his raids on Israel, he took captive a small girl. We don't know how old she was, probably somewhere between five and ten years old. Old enough to be of some use to his wife. And so he brings her back as a present, a gift to his wife. Look what I got for you when I was out to work today. And he brings home a little girl. Surprise. She's your slave. You can do with her whatever you wish. Now the first miracle here is this girl's heart. And I have often thought that when I get to heaven, this is one of the first people I want to meet, this little girl. She had every reason to hate this man, to loathe his being. She was ripped away from her family. We don't know the circumstances of that, but it wouldn't be hard to imagine that this Naaman had executed her parents in the process of stealing her away. And now she's in another country with no prospect of ever coming home. And this man... Who is her enemy has leprosy. And she's old enough to know there is no cure from leprosy. And it is a death sentence. And if I think I'd been that little girl, I would have been saying, Amen, hallelujah. He is getting what that guy deserves. I am so glad. That this man who stole me, who has ruined my life, stripped me away from my parents, my siblings, everything I knew, I am so glad he has leprosy. Praise God. That would have been my heart, but not hers. Astounding. She has, it appears, nothing in her heart except love and compassion for this man, her enemy. And I think that's the first miracle of this story. So when she finds out that her master is a leper, her heart's desire is for him to be healed. Now if he'd been a general in the army of Israel, with leprosy, he would have been dismissed from his duties. Because under Jewish law, a leper was not to have anything to do with society. He was to be ostracized from the society. If he ever came around anyone without leprosy, he was to cover his mouth and say, unclean, unclean, so that everybody could get away from him. But this man is not Jewish. So he's not under the law of Moses. And that's, this is important because many times today even people think that we as Christians are under the law. And we are not. The law was never given to Gentiles. The law was given to Jews. And that's why Naaman is not subject to that law of isolation, of ostracization, because he's not a Jew. And so he's functioning at a very, very high level. We don't know how extensive his leprosy was, but nonetheless it is incurable. There's no hope whatsoever for him. No one has ever been healed of leprosy since the law was given. Moses had leprosy, remember? He said, what am I supposed to do to prove to Pharaoh that you're God? And God says, stick your hand in your coat. Whoop, bring it out. Leprosy. Oh, my. Stick it back in again. Whoop, bring it out. No leprosy. Whoop, 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 whoop back. (laughs) Pretty neat. And then Miriam, she decided that she would be, you know, she should be number one, not just Moses. And so she elevated herself And God struck her with leprosy. And then she had to spend some time outside the camp. God healed her. Those are the only two Jewish people who have ever had leprosy and been healed. And And with both of them, it was before the giving of the law. And since the law has been given, there has never been a single person healed of leprosy. But as you may remember when we looked at the Gospel of Matthew together, there is an entire chapter in the Old Testament of what to do when a leper is healed how he is supposed to show himself to the priest and the priest pronounces him clean and yet that chapter was never used. And so it made the priest begin to wonder why is it in our Bible? A whole chapter on what to do when a a leper is healed and it's never been used. And so they came to the conclusion that God put that chapter in the Bible as a way to indicate that the Messiah had come because only the Messiah, they believed, could heal because the Messiah would be fully God, fully man. And he could heal the leprosy. This is why when Jesus in Matthew, the gospel written to the Jews, the first miracle that Matthew records is the healing of leprosy. And what did Jesus say? Go show yourself to the priest. And what are we told? Many of the priests came to faith in Christ. Not so with the Pharisees, but but with the priest. Many came to faith because they knew that only the Messiah would be able to hear, cure leprosy because no Jew had ever been cured of leprosy except for Naaman, not a Jew. Now before we go any further, um, what I'm going to do here is make the claim, biblically unsubstantiated claim, so it may be heresy, so I'll just tell you in advance, that leprosy is a picture of sin. It is a symbol of, Or a type of sin. Now, I um, remember from all my Bible college and seminary days. That when it comes to symbols and types. Be very, very careful. And that we should not claim that anything is a symbol or a type. Unless scripture tells us so. Amen. I get it. I understand why. Because we don't want to go down the road. That so many of our church fathers did. Particularly Augustine. Who was just spiritualizing the text making everything a symbol, everything a type, rather than just taking the text at its plain meaning. That you don't want to go down that road because then there's no, there's no right interpretation. Everybody can just come up with their own interpretation. and That's not right. But we do know that there are lots of symbols and types that the Bible gives us. And yet if we didn't have the New Testament, we wouldn't even know that those things, many, in many instances, were symbols and types. For example, who knew that Hagar is a type of law and of performance and of bondage? Who knew that Sarah, in in contrast to Hagar, is a type or a symbol of freedom and of promise? I can guarantee you Hagar and Sarah didn't know that. (laughs) But that's what Paul says. And Paul says, allegorically speaking... And he uses that terrible word that you're never supposed to use if you've been to seminary, allegory. You don't allegorize the text. I get it. But Paul felt perfectly comfortable to make an allegory out of that. And that's not the only place. When the kings were anointed with oil... I think it's pretty reasonable to say, even though the text never comes out and says it, it is a reasonable thing that most people come to the conclusion that oil was a symbol of the, of the king's need to be enabled by the Holy Spirit. So in other words, the oil was a picture or a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But where does it say that in the Bible? Never says it, but virtually everybody's in agreement, oil In the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The rock, when Moses struck the rock because the people were without water, water came out. Later on, no water. God says, go speak to the rock. What does Moses do? Takes his staff and he beats the rock. And God still sends out water. But then God says to him, you messed up. You're not going to ever go into the promised land. And it's not until 1 Corinthians 10... That we're told why. The rock was a picture of Christ. And the striking of the rock was a picture of Christ crucified. And he only dies once for our sin. So he never needs to be struck again. He only needs to be spoken to. And so Moses broke that picture of Christ crucified when he hit the rock on the second occasion. Moses didn't know he was breaking a type. Not until the New Testament did we know that was a type. The manna. Did Israel know that the manna was a picture of Christ, who is the true bread of life? I don't think they did. The New Testament interprets that for us. And I just keep going. The Lord's Supper. It's a picture, again, of Christ crucified for us. The church is the temple of God, Paul tells us. And he goes on and says, if anyone destroys the local church, destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. 1 Corinthians 3. Marriage is a picture of a covenant relationship that God has with us. It's not just about two people getting married. One of my favorite types or symbols in the Old Testament is Israel living, leaving Egypt. Was a picture of salvation. Even though Israel was not personally saved, the individuals in Israel, most of them were not saved. Yet the nation leaving Israel was a picture of salvation. And the nation entering Canaan, the author of Hebrews says, is a picture of entering into rest. And so the wilderness is a place between salvation and entering into rest, or a place that we would call carnality. And because leaving Egypt is a picture of salvation, this is why Israel could never return to Egypt. Never. God says, Never, you will never go back to Egypt. Why? Because you can't lose your salvation. You can't get unsaved. And to go back to Egypt would be to say that you can get unsaved, that you can lose your salvation. So you will never go back to Egypt. The lamb that they sacrificed at every Passover was a picture of Christ to come. The veil in the temple being ripped. That veil, who knew that veil was a picture of our separation from God. And when Christ died for us, the veil was ripped. The bronze serpent in the wilderness. The Sabbath day. All of these things are types and symbols. Some of them are interpreted for us. Most of the ones that I've listed are interpreted. But there are a couple that are not. Like oil and leprosy. Now why would I say that leprosy is a picture of sin? Think about this disease. Number one, it is incurable, just like our sin. And if there is any just fundamental lesson to learn about sin, is that there is simply no cure. There is no deliverance. No human being has ever delivered himself (laughs) from any sin whatsoever. We need to understand that. Whether that leprosy is is a spot a speck on a fingertip or whether it is eaten up, whether the whole person is filled with leprosy or has a speck on a fingertip, there is absolutely no healing from it. It is incurable. And by the way, I don't think once anybody got that speck on their finger, they were walking around to the people that were full of leprosy and go, I've got less leprosy than you do. (laughs) You're a bigger leper than I am. Who would do that? There was no self-righteousness when you knew you had leprosy. You're a leper. You're a leper. Whether it's a speck or whether your whole body is full of leprosy. It is incurable. We know that it would spread. It was not static and it never reversed itself. Just like sin. Sin is not static And it never reverses itself. It only spreads. It gets worse and worse and worse. We know that it would disfigure a person, mar them, scar them. It was ugly. You were not enhanced. You were not made more beautiful by having leprosy. I'm not a big... um, Hollywood buff by any any stretch, but I but I just in thinking through this, I'm thinking, oh yeah, there's a couple of actresses that would really highlight um, birth defects a mole, Elizabeth Taylor there I can't even say her name, Cindy Crawford moles on their face. In fact, I actually Googled you know um, actresses with moles. And, and, and they listed 10, 12 famous actresses who, who are considered more beautiful because of that mole on their face. And I remember my mom even had a couple moles on her face and, and she was guilty of darkening those things to make them more prominent. I'm <laughs> going, wow. You know, who would do that with leprosy? But we, but, see, with, but we all know when it comes to sin how it can be, people will actually highlight their sin and make it seem as though this is a good thing. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm a survivor? Yeah, and that's sin. <laughs> God didn't put that in you, that I'm going I'm to win at all costs. I'm going to survive no matter what. And yet we can boast in the things that we ought to be ashamed of. Studies have been done on modern leprosy and, and, and scientists believe that ancient leprosy and modern leprosy are the same. Today it's called Hansen's disease. Um, there have been Christians who have written on this. There's a well-known book that came out a number of years ago um, and, it, and, the, and the authors went to a leper colony in Louisiana to study this. Of course, leprosy would be in Louisiana because it's really lousy Louisiana and... Um, <laughs> If it's going to be anywhere, it'd be in Louisiana. But um, I won't continue that. Just can't miss that. And so these guys, they went and they studied leprosy there in Louisiana at that colony. And um, they made some fascinating discoveries. And one of the things they they found out is that leprosy does not cause body parts to, to rot away, as we used to think. Because people that with leprosy typically lose their fingers, they lose their ears, they lose their nose. And they now know that that leprosy doesn't actually do that. But why then do lepers, in the Old Testament, they would miss all kinds of body parts? Well, it's because leprosy would result in being isolated, ostracized. And these people, in their alienation, and sin alienates, we need to know that about sin, is they would be forced to live in the garbage dump with other lepers. And what also lives in the garbage dump are rats. And one of the other things that leprosy does is it desensitizes. It kills the nerve endings. So you have no pain receptors. Wherever the leprosy is, you have no pain receptivity. Well, being able to, to have pain is actually a gift from God. And so these two Christians are at this leprosy clinic And they try to unlock a door that hadn't been opened in years, and it was just rusted shut. Two great big 200-pound men, they couldn't get the door handle turned. Twelve-year-old boy with leprosy walks up, flicks the doorknob, and opens right up. And they go, how did that skinny little 12-year-old do that? And one of the men was a doctor and said, let me see your hand. And he looked at his hand, and it sliced right to the bone. Because he had leprosy on his hand, he couldn't even know when was too much pressure, when to stop. Pain is actually a gift from God. And so leprosy desensitizes, it deadens. Well, back to why then do these people lose their fingers and nose and ears? It's because there's no pain receptivity. When they're sleeping in the dump with the rats, the rats would come and eat away the body parts where there was leprosy. So they didn't just fall off, they were eaten off. And again, you just see unbelievable what this leprosy caused. It impacted all of life, it changed all of their relationships, and ultimately it led to death. All of these things are true of sin, it is incurable, it spreads throughout the whole body. It cannot be hidden forever. Sooner or later, you're going to know when a person has leprosy because it continues to spread. It's never static. It never gets better. It disfigures. It mars. It's ugly. It defiles before God. It makes somebody unclean. They cannot continue to go to the temple and worship. So in other words, it separates you not only from mankind, it separates you from God. It isolates, it alienates from others, it impacts all of life, it desynthetizes, changes, and as sin continues, we become less and less conscious even of our sin. And this is why the scripture warns about having a dead conscience. And people can so continue in their sin that there's not even any sensitivity to their sin, and they become even dead and insensitive to what their sin is causing other people. Right? And ultimately, it leads to death. No wonder I think we can safely say that leprosy, unlike any other disease, is a picture of sin. A very accurate picture of sin. And I think that's part of the reason this story is here. So we move on. So the little girl says to her mistress, I wish that my master were in Samaria, the city of Samaria, where the prophet is and he could cure him of his leprosy. Talk about faith. Not only is there forgiveness and freedom from bitterness in this girl's heart, but there is tremendous faith. This girl's a believer. Because no one's ever been healed of leprosy. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. God can do this. And this girl believes that God can do what has never been done before. And so mistress tells husband. Husband goes to the king. King goes, this is fantastic. King says, I'll write a letter. You go to the other king. Because that's the way things would have been done. Done at the highest levels. And anybody would assume that if there is a prophet in Israel who can heal leprosy, then that prophet is buddies with the king. (laughs) King hates the prophet king would like to kill the prophet. They are not on good terms. And so the general shows up to the king of Israel, Jehoram, and says here's the letter. Here's the money. Do something for me. And the king goes, this is absolutely impossible. Yep. This man is doing this just to provoke a battle, a fight with me. Nope. And he rips his clothes in distress Elisha hears about it and says, send him to me. And then we come to verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Now he's already been in front of the king, and he comes to this hovel, (laughs) this hovel where this prophet lives. And if the king lets him in the palace, certainly this prophet would let him in his home. Not so. And he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha, and Elisha sent a messenger to him. Highly offensive. Saying, to add insult to injury, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Take a bath, buddy. Seven of them, and you will be healed. Hospitality demands in any society that this not happen. Somebody comes to your home, even an enemy, in this culture, you let him in. And for that brief moment, you're okay with each other. He comes in your home, you cook a meal for him, you lay out the spread, and you send him away with your blessing. Elisha refused to even open the door. Huge insult. And then adds to it, bathe in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be healed. No reason why that man should believe that. Every reason why he should take offense, and he did. Verse 11, he was furious, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand around and cure the leper. See, he had his idea of what God should do to fix him. And that's one of the things he's got to die to. When you're a leper, you don't make any demands upon God. You have got to die to even your thoughts of what God's going to do to take care of your problem. And he's furious. He storms out of the place. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Yeah, they are. Could I not wash in them and be clean? No, it's not what God said. So he turned away in a rage. Then his servants came near, and they got his attention. Humble, gentle people that spoke reasonably, and Naaman heard, My father. Had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean. If he had told you to climb Mount Everest on your knees, you would have done it. If he had said walk across the hot coals, you would have done it. If he would have said, you know, let somebody beat you to your unconscious, you would have done it. But all he said is, wash. Wash. Something that any child could do. And he heard. He said, that's right. Because in the next verse, verse 15, sorry, verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. Not five times not six, not Farpar, not Abnar, Jordan River. Seven times, exactly as God has said. Now, if leprosy is a picture of sin, the healing of leprosy is a picture of what? Salvation. There is only one way to be saved. There's always been only one way. This man could not go to any other river, He had to go to Jordan, could not dip himself fewer than seven times, had to be seven, only one way to be saved. And in humility and in obedience, he does it. Apparently D.L. Moody preached on this passage and was famous for saying, Naaman first lost his temper, then he lost his pride, and then he lost his leprosy. And he says, and that's how God works. Many people, when God says to them, this is the only way, they get mad because of pride. They've got to lose their pride if they're going to lose their sin. If they're going to be saved, you've got to lose your pride. And come to Jesus, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, as a little child. Unless you are converted and become as one of these little ones, you shall not even enter the kingdom of heaven. And Naaman became like a little child. First, spiritually, okay, I will do the easy, simple thing. And then he became like a little child with his skin, physically. It says that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Oh, man. Now, by the way, the Jordan River is 32 miles away. It's not just down the the road. 32 miles away. So that meant a whole day he's marching toward that river in faith. And I wonder if his anticipation began to grow with each mile. And finally he goes down that river, dips himself seven times, and he comes out the seventh time and the leprosy is gone. And now he's got another 32 miles back to Elisha to say, look what God has done. And he goes back, a believer, I believe regenerated, saved, a man that we will see in heaven when he returned to the man of God with all of his company and came and stood before him, he said, get this, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now that is a confession of faith. There is no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. Now this man came With a lot of money. It said. Ten talents of silver. That's 150 pounds. Of silver. No I'm sorry. 750 pounds of silver. And 6,000 shekels of gold. Which is 150 pounds of gold. So if you do the conversion on this. Just with the gold. It's almost four and a half million dollars. Wow. It's right. (laughs) This. Man, Elijah, has nothing. And Gehazi has even less. He's a servant to a man who has nothing. And now you've had over just four, over $4 million just dumped on you. Added to the silver, it's about $5 million that's just here. It's for you. And so he's saying, please take a present. The present was almost $5 million. And Gehazi is sitting back there going, it's Christmas. (laughs) Oh, man, he is so excited. They're going to be eating something other than beans now. But Elisha said, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And so then Naaman says, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no more sacrifice, will no more offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. It was not uncommon at this time that if you were living away from your country, that if you had the chance, you would take dirt from your country and you would build a shrine to your national God. Because the belief was that every country had its own God. And so if you could take some dirt from your country, it was like your God would come with the dirt. That is not what he's saying. Because remember, he's saying there is no God in all the earth but the God of Israel. But he's just wanting to rightly not forget what God has done. And so he's going to build his own worship center in his backyard to the one true God. He says, I will never worship anyone else but the God of Israel. It's a good thing. And then he says, verse 18, In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. He's thinking ahead. He knows what it's going to be like when he goes back home because now he's a believer. May the the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Syria, goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon because I will be expected to go in with him. I am his constant bodyguard. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, because that's what you do when you go into another worship center, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. I don't see how I can continue to be, function in the role that I'm in, and not do what's expected of me. But understand, I am not worshiping Rimon. I am only worshiping God, but I'm going to have to go in the house of Rimon and bow down when the king bows down. Can God forgive me of this? And just simply says, go in peace. Or in other words, shalom. It's okay. Don't worry about it. So he departed from him from some distance. He went home, cleansed of his leprosy, and saved from his sin. What a gift. Clearly there's more going on here than just one man with his leprosy. <laughs> You know this would have had a tremendous impact on Syria as a nation when word gets out of what God can do in Israel. And it's not just about Israel. This would have had an evangelistic um, effect on Syria and perhaps other nations as word went out about this. Unfortunately, it should have never had to happen this way. This should have been, this is happening, this evangelistic impact is happening in spite of Israel. It was supposed to happen in cooperation with Israel. That king should have been the first one to say, Oh yeah, God God can do this. There's no problem at all. But he's thinking God can't do this because he is a rank unbeliever. But God is sidestepping the king of Israel, working through the prophet. To bring about the same purpose that God has raised Israel up. And that would be to be a light to the nations. Specifically a light to the Gentiles. But Gehazi, servant of Elisha, says, we've just missed a huge opportunity. Five million dollars is riding away. So Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought Behold, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian by not receiving from his hands what he brought. Spared this Naaman the Syrian? Clearly, Gehazi does not have the compassion for this man that God or Elisha has. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Wow. Wow. So Gehazi pursued Naaman, and when Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot again. Humility. What general and what man of this station in life would get down and greet this guy as an equal? But Naaman has been humbled, and he is grateful. Got down out of his chariot and said, is all well? And he said, all is well, my master my master has sent me, saying, Behold, lying through his teeth, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give, give, me them, give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. A talent of silver weighed 75 pounds. And Naaman said, Please, take two talents. Now, how is he going to carry 150 pounds of, tal- of silver? And he urged him and bound two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants and they carried them before him. And he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and he deposited them in the house and then he sent the men away and they departed. And then he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Another lie. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you? Another miracle. When the man turned from his chariot to meet you, is it a time to receive money and receive clothes and receive olive yards and receive vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cleave to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his place a leper as white as snow. Well, that's pretty harsh. And this is why I think that leprosy is a picture of sin and the healing of leprosy is a picture of salvation. It explains how harshly God deals with Gehazi. God takes his symbols, his types, very seriously. Salvation is the free gift of God. You can do nothing for it. To be saved, we believe in Jesus, and we are saved. There is no other name given by which men may be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. John wrote and says, These things I have written so that you might know that he is Christ, the Son of God, and that you might believe in him and have eternal life. That believing that you might have eternal life. John will write much of, I'm sorry, Paul will write much of Galatians and Romans about the fact that this offer of salvation is free. He will argue over and over again that faith and works are mutually exclusive. They are not in the same camp. Salvation is a gift. Works are something you do. So when Gehazi, I'm sorry, when Naaman went down to the river and dipped himself seven times, it was not he was not working for his salvation. He was responding in faith to what God said. And God healed him. There is no works involved here. And there is nothing he can do except say thank you. So nothing he could do beforehand to work for his salvation. This is why it was something so easy. And there's nothing he could do afterwards to pay for his salvation. Money, payment, works are off the table. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that it is not of works, but it is the gift of God. The gift of God. In Romans chapter 5, verses 15, 16, and 17, in those three verses, five times salvation is mentioned as a gift. And two of those times, it's expressly said it is a free gift. So that's not a redundancy. I don't know what is. All gifts are by their nature, by definition, free. But twice, Paul has to emphasize free gift because we need to get it through our heads. Salvation is not based on what we do. It is totally 100% based on what Jesus has done, and the receiving of the gift is not a work. It is just saying thank you to what he has done. It is a free gift. And when Gehazi takes the money, he has destroyed the picture that salvation is the free gift of God. The only thing God's looking for in response to what he has done is to say, Jesus, I am yours. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself to him as a living sacrifice. Gehazi, I mean, Naaman was more than willing to do that. I will worship no one else on this planet but God. I am his and his alone. And that's all that God is looking for in response to our salvation. So I would ask in wrapping up this message... Do we understand the nature of sin? Do we look at it and hate it like we would leprosy? If you were to get go to the doctor and the doctor comes back with that dreaded C word, cancer, you know that your heart sinks. Cancer. But with cancer, there's treatment. And typically, it's not a diagnosis of there is no hope. But with leprosy, no treatment, no hope. Do we understand the magnitude of our problem? There is no hope. No hope for our sin, whether it's a speck or whether we're full of it. No hope other than Jesus Christ. Do we we understand that Christ is the only deliverer from leprosy and from sin? We're going to be coming up on New Year's soon. And every one of us, we have things that we would like to do better at in the next year. Whether it's lose that 10 pounds, you know, or exercise more regularly. And those are good, that's fine. Bodily discipline is profitable, Paul says. And so we ought to be disciplined with our bodies. But no amount of discipline, no amount of self-will will will ever set you free from any sin, great or small. Only Jesus, only Jesus can do that. And have we come to that point of childlike faith that says, yes, Lord. You have provided Jesus. It is Jesus I receive. Jesus I accept. Thank you. And we simply receive the one offer and the only offer He has ever made. Only one way. For us, it's not a Jordan River, thank God. But it's Jesus who is present and available for salvation to have our sin removed. And God looks at us now and He says, I'm not saying you're not capable of sinning anymore. (laughs) But I'm saying the sin has been removed. I'm saying the barrier, the dividing wall that alienated you from me is gone. And we're not only, no longer are we on an enmity state. But you are my friend. You are my child. The problem has been taken away. And we have been made one with God through Christ." whose blood cleanses us from all sin, all unrighteousness. Through the Lamb of God who came into this world, as John cried out, to take away the sin of the world. Only the Lamb of God, receiving Him, putting our faith in Him, only in Him are we saved. And at that moment, not only is our sin removed, but we are given the very life of Jesus, which is eternal life. What a gift. No works involved. Simple faith. Humbling ourselves and saying, yes, Lord, thank you. And this is why he came. It's why we have this nativity scene over here every year at this time of year. Celebrating his birth and remembering he came to die for us. To take our sin upon himself so that we might be cleansed like Naaman and have our humanity, not just our flesh, but our humanity restored by having our sin taken away and being gifted with the very life of Jesus. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this gift. We are all Naaman. Filled with leprosy. Apart from Christ. We thank you for Jesus. Who you sent into this world. To be our sin bearer. To take our sin upon himself. And to cleanse us. From all unrighteousness. And We thank you God. For all that you've done for us. I pray that now. In this time. As those who have received Jesus. That we would not forget. What you have done. And that we would be. That we would recognize that sin, if we allow it, God will continue to have the power of leprosy in our lives. I pray that we would confess it and turn to you and allow you to again cleanse us on a daily basis from all our sin. If there is anybody here or listening, Lord, that has yet to receive this free gift. I pray, God, that by your Spirit, they would recognize that there is no hope for them in their sin apart from Jesus. He is the only one who can cleanse, the only one who can give us life. And I pray that they would receive in humility and in thankfulness the gift that is offered to them. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.